So this morning we are beginning a, a new sermon series, and it's, a, it's one of those sermon series that unfortunately, it's one of those topics that unfortunately a lot of churches uh, just don't deal with. A lot of churches just kind of brush over it, and I don't want to do that. I want us to take some time, and what we're going to talk about is, is doubt, because I do believe that every person in this room has some doubt, some form of doubt at some time or another, and unfortunately, like I said, churches and church leaders have just skirted around this uh, when their members really deal with it, when people in the community deal with it, but we all have doubts. We all doubt something or someone or some event. It's just a reality of life. It's, it's just that many people have been taught wrongly about how to view doubt. A lot of people have been told it's wrong to have doubts if you're a Christian, and I just don't think that's true. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to kind of work through that and uh, lay that, that out. So uh, the Bible itself even talks about men and women of the faith who had doubts. Uh, there are entire books that deal with the issue of doubt in various ways. One of the books that, that a lot of you have probably already thought of that deals with doubts is the book of Job. Job really wrestles with all kinds of doubt. He explores the most difficult questions of life. And so if there's doubt creeping into your mind right now, and I don't think we live in doubt, but I think we have seasons that we go through where we have doubts, where we have questions. And I think that's okay. Just don't let them sit there because when they just sit there, they just fester and then they just can, can diminish your faith. But I think they can also enhance your faith. But if you're going through difficult times right now, if there's doubts you have, I want to encourage you to look at the book of Job. Like I said, he wrestles with some of the most difficult questions of life. One of the questions that he wrestles with is, why is there evil in the world? Why do we even have to tolerate evil in a world that God created? We know the answer to that when you go back to Genesis 3 and Adam and, in, they sinned against, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And when they sinned against God, they invited sin into the world. And that's why we have evil running rampant in our world today. There's a remedy for that. We'll talk about the remedy. The remedy is Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about how he does that. Another question Job wrestles with is, why do pain and suffering and heartache, why do those things exist? Why do we have to encounter those things? Again, it goes back to sin. It wasn't God's plan for any of us to have heartache or pain or suffering. God didn't create us for that, but because we thought we knew better than God, the stuff enters the world. And so it's a reality that we go through those things. We've all experienced heartache. We've all experienced pain. We've all experienced suffering in one form or another. Job asked the question, why do the righteous suffer? I remember somebody coming to me one time, you know, uh, just sharing with me, you know, my neighbor over here doesn't acknowledge God in anything, and everything seems to go their way. Everything's perfect and right for them, and we're in church every Sunday, we do devotions every morning, and man, it just seems like we suffer upon suffer. We'll talk about that, because suffering can be discipline. And God disciplines those He loves. He allows us to go through things. Now, we may not understand it, but that's His ways. And we also have to remember that just because somebody has it on easy street here in this world doesn't mean that that's a blessing from God. There's the difference between that health and wealth gospel. You, you may not have it easy here in this world. It may be right smack dab in the center of God's will. That's just a reality. Job also wrestles with, with the question of, uh, things like, uh, why do I have to experience all of these kinds of hurts? And so maybe questions like these have allowed doubt to maybe creep into your mind, into your heart, into your relationship with Jesus. And that's okay. But if they have, I want to encourage you to explore the book of Job. 
the deep and mysterious ways of God to address all these questions that people wrestle with. There, there's another book. If Job's not your cup of tea, that's fine. There's another Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes, and it looks at the deep and very perplexing issues of life. It goes deep. On the surface, this book seems to, to challenge all biblical truth. That's what it seems to do as it dares to face hard questions of the secular mind and finds that sometimes there is no meaning. Everything's meaningless, everything under the sun. If you read Ecclesiastes, you'll see that phrase over and over and over again. Or if I can say it this way, there's doubt. There's doubt in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Lamentations, it's a dark and yet very beautiful book. And most people haven't read Lamentations. A lot of people haven't read it. So I'd encourage you, spend some time in that. It reflects on the pain and injustice and human loss. This book is filled with all kinds of emotion, the emotions of fear. Anybody ever struggle with fear? It, it deals with fear. It deals with anger. Anybody have anger? You know, it deals with desperation. It deals with loneliness and even hopelessness. All those different things, all those emotions that we all go through, it, it deals with that. So, so get into that book. Lamentations understands. Habakkuk, love the book of Habakkuk. It's another book of doubt because as human beings, we doubt. Habakkuk wrestles with God over questions like, God, if you are really in control, then why in the world does evil seem to win more than good? Why does that happen? How can a just God ignore injustices? Why do the wicked prosper? Can a good God use evil to accomplish his purpose? Tough questions. Good questions. Questions I believe a lot of us wrestle with. Habakkuk struggled to understand how God works. I'm just going to ask, anybody in here struggle to understand how God works sometimes? I mean, I do. I struggle to understand how he works and why he does some of the things he does, but he's God. His ways are greater than mine. His understanding far exceeds mine. But in the end, he became convinced that God, uh, that he could trust God completely, no matter how bleak or confusing life seemed to be. And so, folks, my goal for this series, as we're in this through the month of February, my goal for all of us through this series is to eventually get to the place that no matter what doubts we might have, we will be convinced, convinced that we can trust God. No matter what doubts we have, we are convinced we can trust God. That's where I want every one of us to be. Some of us are closer to that. Some of us have exceeded that. But that's where I'd like to see us all, all be on our journey with Jesus. Trusting God in the midst of our doubts, it's not easy, and I'm not going to pretend that it is. It's difficult. I just want to say before I go any further, and maybe to help put some of you at ease and to answer some of your questions, and that's this, just this. I just want to be transparent with you. I have doubts, personally. I have doubts. I don't talk about them a lot of times, uh, but I do. I have doubts. Now, some of you may be concerned to hear me say that um, as, as a spiritual leader, as one of the leaders of, of our church, that I have doubts, but I do. I have doubts. I have questions that come to my mind every day. I don't know how anybody... Christian or not, could, could go through life and not have doubts from time to time, not have questions, not have struggles from time to time. Being in ministry over 20 years, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of people ask me a lot of different questions, and a lot of people have had some very, very serious doubts. 
So this morning, what I want to do is I just want to kind of look at a couple of different questions people have asked. And so you might find yourself in one of these two categories. Maybe these are a question that you've asked, maybe not. But uh, hopefully they'll help you as you encounter others. Whether you've dealt with these or not, maybe you'll have somebody else come in your life who has struggled with these. So one of the questions people have asked me is this, does doubting my salvation mean I'm lost? Does doubting my salvation mean I'm lost? Now, how would you answer that question if somebody came to you and asked you that? Hey, Gary, I doubt my salvation. Does that mean I'm lost? John, can you help me out with that? How, how would you answer that? If somebody you, you just had met just said, you know, I doubt my salvation. Does that mean I'm a lost soul? What do I need to do? Well, the very first thing I tell them is that Satan wants you to doubt your salvation he really wants you to doubt your salvation he he uh, he wants you to discourage you that's what he wants to do but here's the reality folks most believers have doubted their salvation at one time or another a lot of people have had just even that fleeting thought of doubt for just a second now there can be several causes of that doubt lots of them some are valid and some aren't but we're going to kind of work through what some of those could be. So if you doubt your salvation, there are some steps you can take to find reassurance and dispel the doubts and rest in the promises of God. And so that's what I want to share with you this morning. So the first one is that it's good to know that whether or not you have doubts is not what determines your salvation. Okay? So I want you to know that. It's good to know that whether or not you have doubts, that's not what determines your salvation. Some genuine believers really struggle with doubt, while some unbelievers who presume to be saved never have a doubt a day in their life. They just don't. They don't doubt anything. So it's not automatic that the presence of doubt indicates a lack of salvation or that the absence of doubt attests to salvation, okay? So doubt does not mean you don't have salvation. And a lack of doubt doesn't mean you do have salvation. Personally, I believe faith requires doubt. Faith requires doubt. In order for faith to be faith, there has to be a, a smidgen of doubt from time to time. Not necessarily living in it, but fleeting thoughts. There's, there's just thoughts, there's questions. One reason people doubt their salvation is the presence of sin in their lives. One of the reasons people doubt their salvation is, is the presence of sin in their lives. Many true Christians struggle against sins. And this may cause them to, to doubt their salvation. Now it's important here to recognize that despite the Christians being a new creation in Christ, everyone still sins. Remember James chapter 3 verse 2. James says we all stumble in many ways. And that stumbling means sin. We all sin in many ways. We all make mistakes. Sometimes we lose our temper. That's a sin. We get angry. That's a sin. We uh, take another trip through the buffet line one time, and that's a sin. Our eyes stay focused on a certain someone a little too long, and a thought comes in our mind. That's a sin. We all stumble. We all sin in many ways. Now, remember, James isn't talking to non-Christians as he's writing his letter. James is talking to church leaders scattered all around the world. So this is a letter to church people. This is a letter to Christian people. That's why this is so important. We all sin in many ways. 
No one reaches a state of sinless, of sinless perfection in this world. Not one person. Now, you might encounter people who think they're sinless, that they don't do anything wrong. You might encounter people like that, but the truth is, none of us reaches a state of sinless perfection in this world. The difference for the believer is the attitude they have toward the sin in their life and the response to it. Some of you might know the name Adrian Rogers. I really like Adrian Rogers. I like to listen to him on the radio. He's passed away, but they still play his sermons. Uh, but Adrian Rogers said, Before I got saved, I was running to sin. That's what we all do before any of us uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're all running to sin. Doesn't mean you're not a good person, but you're still running to sin. Doesn't mean you can't do something nice for somebody else, but you're still running to sin. Before I got saved, he said, I was running to sin. Now I'm running from it. That's the attitude difference. A Christian is running from sin. He flees from it. And he says this, he says, and if I fail, the only thing I would change about that is, and when I fail, because I will, and when I fail, I turn right around and start running away again. I love that image. I mean, I think we can all picture that. If we're running this way, we're running towards sin, but we turn, and so we're running to Jesus, and we fall down, and maybe we, we start running back to it, so he turns around, you run, keep running towards Jesus. It's also important to know that the presence of sin in somebody's life can be the sign that you're not saved. Okay? So if you've got sin in your life, maybe because you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear that willful, unrepentant sin is an indicator of an untransformed heart. Okay? So let me let Scripture speak to this, because it'll do a whole lot better job than me. So if you've got a Bible, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. And there we see that John wrote this. He said, no one who lives in him, and the him there is Jesus, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to make a mistake, you're not going to falter in some way, but it means you're not pursuing a lifestyle of sin. It means you're not willfully going out to sin. He says no one who continues, present perfect, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. So if you pursue a lifestyle of sin, then you don't know him. You're ignoring him. Now, he may be standing right beside you, but you don't know him. How many of you are sitting close to somebody this morning you don't know? That's the way we go through life with Jesus sometimes. He's right beside us, and we're flirting with him, but we don't know him. We're trying to add him to our life instead of making him the center of our life. And it just happens more and more and more in our churches. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. Now this is, talk about, this is talking about pursuing a lifestyle that is sinful. Like pursuing sexual sins in your life. Or habitually overeating. That's called gluttony and that's a real sin in the Bible. Or lying just a lie. Now if you find yourself making statements like this, well... I know I shouldn't say anything, but listen, just shut up, because that's another sin. That's a sin called gossip, and that one runs rampant in our churches for some reason. 
People love to pass information along that they ought not pass along. So just silence. That's gossip. It's a sin. Romans 6, 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul weighs in on this, and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. If I could bring that into our modern language, Paul would say, That's just stupid. By no means. You don't keep on sinning so grace can increase. It doesn't even make sense. We are those, listen, we are those who have died to sin. When you die to something, you no longer pursue it. So my question for all of us is this. Have you died to sin? Have you died to sin? Are you no longer pursuing it? How can we live in it any longer, Paul says? You see it? How can we live in it any longer? It should nauseate us to pursue sin. If you're living a lifestyle that the Bible condemns as sinful, then there's a spiritual problem. There's a real spiritual problem. Do Christians sin? Yes. Yes. Do they willfully continue in sin? No. No, they don't. Doc Henderson, I love him dearly. Many of you knew Doc. Uh, he was a professor at Lincoln Christian University. And I love the way he put this. He just put it in ways that plain folk like me could understand. But he said, there's a difference in falling in mud puddles and trying to get out and getting in a mud puddle and making mud pies. I love that. Big difference in that. See, what he's saying is we're all going to fall into a mud puddle at some time or another. We just are. Every one of us is going to fall into a mud puddle. But what are you going to do when you fall in the mud puddle? Are you going to try and climb your way out? Or are you going to get comfortable in there and start making mud pies? And then what will happen eventually is you'll start eating those mud pies and you'll convince yourself that, hmm, this is good. That's what people do in sin. Hey, this is okay. This feels good, so this must be right. No. No. Climb out. Run from sin. Flee from sin. I really want to encourage you this week to spend some time in a couple of different passages of Scripture, if you would. I want to share those with you real quick. Uh, they're not up here. Uh, the first one is Galatians 5, 13 through 26. Jot that one down. Just spend some time in those verses this week. The Apostle Paul does a great job talking to this church in Galatia that he loves so dearly about this attitude towards sin. And then he does the same thing over in the book of Colossians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So if you don't have like a devotional study you're going through, um, just, just go to these two passages and just let the Apostle Paul speak to you. Let the Word of God speak to you in your life and, and just understand that difference between, yeah, I'm going to sin, but I'm not pursuing a lifestyle of sin. Don't, don't pursue it. Flee from it. If you doubt your salvation because of sin in your life, then here's what you need to do. You need to confess to God. And you need to ask God for his forgiveness. Okay? This is serious business. You need to confess your sin to God. You need to ask God for his forgiveness. Then, take steps to not repeat the sin. Okay? So, here's what I mean by that. Let's start out easy. You need to have, maybe if gossip is something that you deal with and struggle with, then maybe what you need to do is get a good number of people around you who will hold you accountable and tell you to shut up when you start talking about things you ought not talk about. 
All right? Those are, that's called love. That's really, listen, that's really the idea of the word encouragement. It's to speak truth into your life when you're going astray. It's not to say, oh my, your dress looks nice today. That's not encouragement. Encouragement is speaking truth into someone's life when they need to hear it. And sometimes that's what we need. So if we start gossiping, have somebody around you that'll tell you, stop, knock it off. Maybe eating is your struggle. Maybe you have an eating addiction. I don't know. Watch it. Just watch it. Be careful with it. It can so easily become an idol to so many people. And, and a lot of people uh, hide in this. And, and we laugh about it. You know, we laugh about how much some people eat and all that kind of stuff. It's a sin. And the Bible talks about it. Okay? I know I'm not the picture of health, and I'm not trying to come off like I am. But those are things we need to watch out for. If you're feeling depressed or angry or rage and you turn to food for comfort, that's an addiction. Just like pills or liquor or anything else. So, so be careful with that. Get people in your life who can help you with that. Okay? Avoid things. You know, like that aisle with all the chips and the sweets. It's my favorite aisle in the store, but avoid those things if you have to. Buffets, avoid them like the plague. What if it's sexual sins in your life? Well, we talked about that one just a little bit. You just got to be strong in that. You just got to be strong in that. Maybe it's pornography. Don't take your computer into rooms that you shouldn't take it into. Okay? Now, I know with these cell phones, it's really simple. So I'm just, I'm, hey, have your cell phone out. Let people look at it. Don't hide it. Don't put a lock screen on it. I know that sounds stupid. It's safety, security. Have somebody <laughs> that can help you, hold you accountable in that because pornog pornography is so prevalent today, so accessible. Okay, so I, it, it, it's a reality. If you're living in a sexual sin, maybe you're having sex outside of marriage, stop. Don't put yourself in situations where that happens. Date with groups. Stay, stay together with the lights on. You know, just put those safeguards in place. All those things are so important. And Jesus tells us in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 3, he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what that is, producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Repent of those sins, repent of those things, and then produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Start living a lifestyle where you control food and food doesn't control you. Where you control your tongue and your tongue doesn't control you. Where you control your eyes and your eyes don't control you. That's producing fruit in keeping with repentance. The very fact that you recognize sin and struggle against it in your own life is proof, I believe, that the Holy Spirit's at work in you and in me. And so cooperate with what he's doing. Have you ever met those people who think they, they just, uh, they can constantly uh, need to come back and, and, and be baptized every week? Have you ever met somebody like that? They're just the kind of people who think, oh man, I, made, I sinned today, i got to go get baptized again. I had a friend of mine who was doing a baptism 
one time and he baptized this person and when this person came back out of the water and they were climbing out of the baptistry they stubbed their toe or something they hit something and they said a naughty word in the baptistry and they turned around and said do i need to get dunked again it's like no you probably just didn't get your mouth under is all but it'll be okay it still took but you know, that's not, that's not what we're saying. Repentance means I'm running from sin. You're still going to make mistakes as you go along. Another reason people doubt their salvation is the absence of godly works in their lives. A lot of people uh, think that we're saved for salvation and salvation alone. We're saved so we can get our one-way pass to heaven, but that's not it. We're saved to do good works. The Christian life involves more than just turning from sin. We are to turn from sin, but when we do that, we turn toward good works. Jesus said that every good tree bears good fruit. What kind of fruit are you bearing? What kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? The Apostle Paul wrote in Titus 3, he said, let, uh, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. There are some who inspect the fruit of their own lives and they find it lacking. They don't like the kind of fruit they have and they wonder if they're truly saved. They're, they're mistrust, they, they, they mistrust that they are a good tree. Uh, and, and the reason, and there are several reasons for that. One is they have set a higher standard for themselves than what God has set for them. You ever met people like that? They just don't think that they can do enough, and that's because they're relying on their own power. Another is they, they're foolishly measuring themselves against others and their fruit and their abilities. You know, God has created us all a little different. And we all have different abilities and different talents. If I tried to measure myself against any of these three folks up here who can play a piano, a guitar, and can sing, I'd come up woefully short. But those aren't my gifts, and you're blessed that I don't try and help them out. You really are. But we all have different gifts. And so don't measure yourself according to what others do. Some people are just lax in their pursuit of good works. They really are. They think, well, I have salvation. I've got Jesus. I'm good. I don't have to do anything now. That's wrong. You're saved to good works. You're saved to do good things. And then some people, they just don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're faking it. They're trying to sprinkle Jesus into their life instead of uh, fully uh, dying to self and living in him. So if you doubt your salvation because of a lack of good works, then confess the sin of omission to God and ask for forgiveness. Do you hear the theme? Confess to God, ask for forgiveness. There's plenty of work to do for the kingdom, and the Bible gives plenty of direction about the will of God for you and me. Be careful not to set up false performance standards. Some people do that. They think the more they do, the better they are, and that's wrong too. It's all a balance because it's all about a heart issue when you get right down to it. And just a real quick side note, I'm not saying you have to work to earn your salvation. You can't do it. It's a free gift. It's given to you and me. You cannot earn it, but once you have salvation, you're expected to do good works. Something else, some people, especially those who were saved at a very young age, children, they doubt their salvation because they don't remember their conversion very well. And I've dealt with a number of people who have, have walked that line they really have. They've struggled with that. And they wonder if the decision they made as a child was a genuine decision. And a lot, of feel, a lot of times feelings like this are common in adults who were saved as children. In such cases, it's good to review the promises of God and to remember that Jesus invites children to come to him. 
That, that's who he invites to come to. Unless you become like one of these little children here, you, you won't have any part with me. That's what he said in Mark 10. Salvation is based on the grace of God and faith in Christ, not our knowledge, not our wisdom, not our sophistication, and not our age. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.8. He says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. And in verse 9 he says, Not by works so that no one can boast you didn't earn it. It's a gift. Jesus promised that those who are his will never perish. That's a great promise. If doubts persist about the genuineness of your childhood conversion, make sure of your faith. Okay, Regardless of what you did as a child, Do you believe now that Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again, sits at the right hand of God in heaven, and will one day return and gather his children into him? Are you placing your faith in him and him alone, or are you placing it in all the other things around you? Another reason for this question about salvation and doubt is is the reason for uh, the the presence of of doubt comes about because people are concerned over persistent guilt over past sins. They just have this incredible guilt about sins they committed a long time ago. Let me just ask, I'll be real transparent here for a second. Does anybody in here ever struggle with guilt over things you did in the past? Just raise your hand if you have. Okay, now, now keep your hands up. Keep them up. If you, ha- if you have, don't just raise them to raise them. But what I want you to do is look around. Just look around at the number of people with their hands up. And the reason I want you to do that is because I hope that's encouraging to you. Because a lot of times we think, oh, I've sinned. I don't know how God could forgive me. I don't know how I could show my face at church. I don't know how I could tell anybody about what I've gone through. Listen, folks, we've all sinned. And we all have regrets over what we've done in the past. Every one of us, you're not alone in that. And I hope you can see that. And that'll help us start to become a real family with each other because now hopefully you can trust that you can go to somebody and say, listen, I'm struggling with this and you're somebody I kind of know and I'd like to talk to about this. So let that be an encouragement to you because we have all at some time or another had some regret about a sin that has... uh, plagued us in the past and and guess who likes to to bring that up all the time our enemy the devil he wants to accuse us he's called the accuser for a very good reason he wants to continue to accuse us of all the things that we've done in the past he likes to whisper in our ear you're not good enough you've made mistakes you you aren't righteous and it can be a real healing when you know that you're not alone in all of this. Fortunately, we know this truth from 1 John chapter 4. The one who is in you, the Holy Spirit of God, is greater than him who is in the world, the accuser. So the Holy Spirit can give you the encouragement you need. If you doubt your salvation because of guilty feelings, then ask yourself this question. Have I asked God for forgiveness for the sins I feel guilty about? Have I asked God for forgiveness about the sins I feel guilty about? Then I want you to remember a promise in Scripture, and let this just speak to your heart this morning. If we confess our sins, look at, look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Just, just look at that with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. Boy, what a promise. What a promise. Sometimes doubting is a good thing. Sometimes doubting is a good thing. Doubt can, like pain, alert us to a problem that needs to be addressed in our lives. We are to test ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. Be sure that you uh, are born again. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, then you do have eternal life. And God wants you to be confident of your salvation. Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. He said, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that love. I hope that speaks encouragement to your heart today. Again, we all have doubts from time to time. Doubt itself is not sinful or wrong. It often can be a catalyst to new spiritual growth. Another doubt people have, and this is more generally, yet not exclusively, it comes from those outside the church. But it also comes from people inside the church, and the doubt is this, can I really trust Jesus? Can I really trust Jesus? And so I'd say the first thing to say to those folks is this. Jesus said, have a faith like a child. He didn't say be childish. He said, have a childlike faith. And a childlike faith differs from a doubting faith in that children are trusting and ready to receive whatever they ask for without question from their parents. A child naturally believes what their parents tell them. They don't worry about whether or not the parent will follow through unless, I'm not, I don't live in a bubble, I understand this. Unless the parent has made a habit of failing to follow through or the child has been raised in some form of abusive home, an emotionally abusive home, a physically abusive home, uh, whatever, a sexually abusive home, then that child's not going to trust. But naturally, that child's going to trust its mom and dad unless that trust has been uh, uh, violated in some form. Jesus wants us to trust him with the heart of a child and without the skepticism of an adult. I don't know about y'all, but as I've gotten older, I found myself becoming more and more skeptical about things, more and more skeptical about people, more and more skeptical about all kinds of stuff. So how does a Christian become childlike in faith and not childish? And how do we stop doubting Jesus? First of all, by remembering God is our Heavenly Father. I think that's huge. Just jot yourself a note. Just remember that God is your heavenly Father. I think that's huge. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. What a blessing. We're children of God. I know some of you were raised as an orphan. Some of you raised in single-parent homes. Some of you had very loving homes with mom and dad. We're all raised in different things, but here's the one reality. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are a child of God. And that should, I hope that just blesses your heart. God wants to be known to his children as a loving, compassionate, ever-present, never-wavering parent and the bible calls believers god's sons god's children sons and daughters 
numerous times throughout Scripture. My favorite is found in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. I love this one. And here Paul says, so, and he's talking to this church in Galatia, and he says this. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. You're no longer a slave to sin that's had its chain wrapped around your leg, holding you down, keeping you from pursuing the life that you desire to pursue. But no, you've been set free, and you're now a child of God. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Wow! You know what an heir does? An heir inherits something. An heir gets something in return. Why? Because the love of their parent is being passed on to them. What is it that we get? Well, we get eternal life. We get to spend all eternity with our Father, the one who created us in His image, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, the one who desires a relationship with us. Even though you might be surrounded by people who can't stand you if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, Jesus wants to have you in a relationship with Him. And God wants to spend eternity with you. And I know some of you, your spouse is going, what? God wants to spend eternity with that? Okay, but it's true. God really wants to spend eternity with each and every one of us because of his great love for us. All of God's attributes are perfect. Now, I know none of us were raised in a perfect home. Some of us raised in really good homes. Some of us raised in really poor homes. But God's attributes are perfect. And even when he, and I talked about this a little earlier, even when he disciplines his children, it's because he loves them. A lot of people have a hard time disciplining kids. They think discipline is, now it can be, discipline can be done out of anger and hate, and I would say that's not discipline, that's abuse. But discipline can be done in great love. The purpose of discipline is because you love that child and you don't want to see them go down a path that's going to be self-destructive to them, that's going to be harmful to those around them. And so God disciplines us because he loves us. And a lot of people, like I said, they don't like discipline. But listen to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship. That's Hebrews 12, 6 through 8. You can turn there and read with me. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Wait, I've got to go through discipline? Yes, we're all going to have to go through discipline. Because God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their fathers? Now you've got to remember this first century A.D. Discipline was common. Nowadays, discipline is kind of waning. It's going by the wayside. We've got all these new fangled ideas on discipline. The Bible is where I would go. Uh, anyway, but if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, this is verse 8, then you are not legitimate. Let me, let me read that again. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Just let that one soak in. Next, you got to remember that God, your Heavenly Father, next is remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the express revelation of God himself. Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 1, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What he's saying is if you believe that there's a God, then believe me, and God and I are one. That's what he talks about all through John. So in order to stop doubting Jesus, I believe a Christian must constantly recall the cross. You've got to go back and remember the cross. When a believer meditates on what Christ did as our Redeemer, he will see how deep and strong Jesus' love is for them. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If Jesus was willing to go to the cross and die this horrible death, on our behalf, do you think he would withhold anything else that would be good for us? Not at all. Absolutely not. The psalmist picks up on this in Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. He won't withhold anything, especially his love from his children. The natural mind, the mind of the flesh, tends to doubt and fear and question what the Bible says rather than simply believe it. To overcome doubt, a Christian should continually seek God through Bible study and prayer. They should commit to a local body of believers, be fed by biblical preaching, have fellowship with like-minded believers. And in this way, when doubts creep in, we can have an idea of how to handle them better in our lives. Doubt is an experience common to all people. Like I said in the beginning, we all have doubts. We all have questions. We all have concerns. Even those with faith in God struggle with doubt on occasion and say with the man in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Turn there, because I want you to see that. When Mark 9, 24. The man says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe that's where you're at today. Some people are hindered greatly by doubt. Some see it as a springboard to life, and others see it as obstacles to overcome. I don't know how you personally see it, but the Bible has something to say about the cause of doubt and provides examples of people who struggled with doubt, people like Job, people like Jeremiah, people, people like Habakkuk, people like Solomon, people like Thomas in the New Testament. And so the remedy for doubt is this. The remedy for doubt is faith, and faith comes by hearing the Word of God. That's Scripture. That's Romans 10, 17. God gave us the Bible as a testimony of His works in the past so that we will have reason to trust Him in the present. I'll say it again. God gave us His Word, His Bible, as a testimony of His works in the past so that you and I will have reason to trust him in the present. He's addressed every doubt that you're going to have in one way or another. He doesn't leave anything to chance. 
Psalm 77 verse 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. God wants us to reflect on who he was in the past so we know who he is in the present. God is unchanging. So in order for us to have faith in God, we must study to know what he has said. And once we have an understanding of what God has done in the past, what he has promised us for the present, and what we can expect from him in the future, we're able to act in faith instead of doubt. The most famous doubter in the Bible was, you can say it, I mean, it's okay, Thomas. Doubting Thomas, who declared that he would not believe that the Lord was resurrected unless he could see and touch Jesus himself. When he later saw Jesus and believed, he received a very gentle rebuke. John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said this to Thomas. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Now, a lot of people are like, well, if I could see Jesus, I would believe. That'd be a whole lot easier. If I could see him, I'd believe. If I could put my fingers in the holes of his hands and put them in the side, I, I would believe, no doubt. Jesus says, Thomas, you've seen me and you believe. Okay. But he said this to him. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Do you believe this one called Jesus? Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Folks, we can have confidence even in the things we cannot see because God has proven himself faithful, true, and able. God never turns an honest doubter away. Never. So, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubts, come to him with your doubts. Come to him with your skepticism. Come to him with your unbelief and your hard questions. Come to him with your sincere uncertainties. He welcomes your hardest questions. If you have doubts, cry out, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Then get ready, because that's a prayer God will always, always answer. Would you put your mask on and stand and Pray with me. Father God, we want to come to you, and first of all, we just want to say thank you for just being the God you are, for being a God who understands and loves and cares for and has great concern for his children. Thank you for the way that you have provided for each and every one of us. You have provided us with the opportunity to believe in you, to have faith in you. You have given us your word which can help us overcome any doubts that we might have. To wrestle through the hard questions, the uncertainties. And so for that we say thank you. We pray, Father, that we would honor and glorify you with the lives that you've given us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.